Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14th. Get tickets now. Hey, everybody. Today's episode is brought to you by the Campfire Poetry Project. This is something I've been waiting for for a long time. Produced by Monticello Park Productions, the Campfire Poetry Project turns classic poems into short films. It breathes new life into the original text, and it recontextualizes these poems, revealing how the issues that the artists were concerned with back in the day are as relevant now as they ever were. If you're looking for short-form creative inspiration on the Internet, look no further and know this, to create more of these works, the Campfire Poetry Project needs the help of artists and independent art lovers everywhere. To learn more, to see the films already produced, and to learn how to make a tax-deductible contribution to the project, please visit CampfirePoetry.com. That's CampfirePoetry.com. Hey, everybody. Hey, hey, hey. What's going on? Welcome to the Other People Show. My name is Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. I hope you're well. What's happening? Where are you? I have Nikki Dolson on the show today. She has a story collection out from Bronzeville Books. It is called Love and Other Criminal Behavior. Love and Other Criminal Behavior. Nikki Dolson and I in conversation shortly. I want to say last week or uh, the last episode, my conversation with Genevieve Hudson, I was talking about Philip Roth and uh, Saul Bellow. <laughs> I was like listening to that episode after the fact, and I was like, damn. I, don't, I hope I didn't sound too judgmental. What I really meant to say is that Humboldt's Gift, the Saul Bellow novel, was just like, it just seemed like, oh my God, I can't believe how much this character hates women. But I didn't mean to lump Philip Roth, and I don't want to disparage somebody unfairly is my point and I don't want to speak ill of the dead I don't know these guys and uh you know you can't judge a person uh, by their fiction so I hope I didn't come off sounding too harsh this is just me second guessing myself for having a strong take I thought Humboldt's gift 
was dated, like like wonderfully rendered at the sentence level, like I'm obviously a masterly writer, but just a character who today, I think if that novel came out, the reviews might not be so glowing. Let me put it to you that way. I could be wrong. I don't know. I'm not a critic. I'm just talking about a book that I had recently read. But uh, I have also been reading a lot of Philip Roth lately. I should say for the record, you know, Philip Roth had his issues with women, I'm sure, I think. I mean, based on what I've uh, read here and there biographically. But I don't get, for what it's worth, the same. (laughs) I don't get the same sense. It's like hard to parse this stuff. I don't want to be the judge and jury on it. You know what I mean. I just think Philip Roth was probably, when you added it all up, a very decent person. And maybe Saul Bellow was too. I don't know, man. I don't know. I'm not, uh, you know, I don't want to be the arbiter of these things. So anyway, just wanted to put that out there. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Doubleday, publisher of the novel Pizza Girl by Jean Kyung Frazier. It's a novel about a girl who delivers pizza. She's pregnant and she becomes obsessed with one of her customers. It is named the most anticipated book of 2020 by Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, L Time Magazine, People, BuzzFeed, Bustle, and more. The New York Times Book Review calls it fresh, funny, and bittersweet. Pizza Girl by Jean Kyung Frazier. Available now from Doubleday. Go get your copy. My guest today is Nikki Dolson. She lives in Las Vegas. We talk a lot about Las Vegas. I don't think I've talked to too many writers, if any writers, who live in Las Vegas. I'm trying to uh, search my memory. But uh, fun to meet her over the transom and talk with her. Her story collection is called Love and Other Criminal Behavior, available now from Bronzeville Books. Here she is, folks. This is Nikki Dolson. Well, I was born in Carbondale, Illinois. Um, My parents were uh, college kids at uh, Southern Illinois University. You were born when they were in school? Yeah. You're the eldest. Uh, I am. The, I'm the eldest. I'm actually the only child that they had together. Um, they got divorced really early on in my life and then went on to have more kids. Um, I have I have Midwest siblings and I have uh, Southwest siblings. So <laughs> well, what does that mean? Did one of your parents moved to the Southwest? Yes. My mom. uh finished college and met somebody and she and I and he came out uh came west came to Vegas when I was oof yeah I guess I was five four or five right in there oh okay so you grew up in Las Vegas mostly yeah uh I guess I'm more here than in Chicago which is where my dad stayed but um, every few years, I would end up being handed off to the other parent. So, so elementary school out here, I did middle school out there, two years of high school here in Vegas, and two years of high school out there in uh, Illinois. Did you like moving around like that? Absolutely not. But, <laughs> you know, it's the thing I, I knew. Like, I've Done the trip from between Vegas and Chicago uh, every way, but I think hitchhiking, I guess. <laughs> so we've driven. I've taken a bus. I don't recommend. Uh, I've done a train. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, I've, I've, I've done it all at different ages. What is Las Vegas like as a place to grow up? Cause I, I, you know, everybody, most people know it as a, as like a tourist experience. You go to the casinos and lose your money, but what's it like to be a kid in Las Vegas? When I was a kid here, it was, it was the eighties. So, you know, it, 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 there was a lot of meandering and getting lost in the desert. And, you know, I chased a lot of lizards when I was little. <laughs> I was very much a loner. What do you mean? You were getting lost? You're like just wandering out into the desert as a child? Well, within the city limits, but there was a lot of empty land. I mean, when I was a kid out here, it was before Thomas and Mac was even built, you know, the, the, where they hold the, the games for UNLV and the convention center out here. Um, it's, it's a huge draw, but I was a kid out here before they even built that. Um, I mean, the, the city has expanded so much from the eighties. It's, it's a little, just, it boggles the mind sometimes how much the city's grown, but, uh, Within the city limits, there was a lot of empty land. So it was desert. It was just barren. It was, you know, one, maybe one little road that connected, you know, the the houses on the, the extreme edges of Clark County, which is where Vegas is situated into. Um, but, you know, the people who built their homes way in the out, out far west, near Mount Charleston or what have you, um, there'd be one little road and there'd be nothing but dirt. And then you'd hit, you know, the city and there's the college. Uh, the university, I mean, um, you know, me and, you know, the rest of the the homes. And of course, of course, the strip. Everything's a strip. So when I was a teenager out here, we used to cruise up and down the strip and whosoever's car was available. That was like your high school fun, cruising the Las Vegas strip. Y- yes, that and going to Lake Mead. Um which, I mean, that was it. That, you hung out at the lake. It's not so bad. Lake Mead's beautiful. It is beautiful, but I'm not get, ever getting in it again. Why? What's in it? Because, you know, three-eyed trout and whatnot. It's a thing. Oh, really? Is it toxic? No, it's not toxic, but it's not. It's not great. So you're bouncing around. You're bouncing around from the Midwest to Vegas, which are two very distinct milieu like that you know they're 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 very different uh did you have a preference like did you prefer vegas to chicago or chicago to vegas um i ooh, i like to think i did now looking back on it but at the time i mean it i was very lonely so my best friend was whatever book i had in my bag <laughs> Um, and I just, yeah, in Illinois, if I stayed in the house too much, I, you know, it's like, go outside and read your book. Ah, and in Vegas, I got left alone to read. So I don't know. <laughs> it, it was not the greatest thing. Either place. That was not the greatest thing. Yeah. Like I, not my family wasn't the problem. It was just. I was between them all the time. What do you mean? Like, because you, because you were being passed, but like you were going back and forth between houses. Like there was a tension around that. For me, not necessarily for my parents. They, they, I was their kid. I was never not like 
there wasn't a, you know, the younger kids or the ones who got more or anything like that. None of that ever happened. Um, but it's this, you know, when you like, you walk into a room and you know, you're late and the conversations are already going and you're just trying to play catch up. That felt like my whole childhood. <laughs> like I was always just out of step with either side of it. But it sounds like you had some, I mean, you, you were riding up and down the Vegas strip in somebody's car. You had friends. It wasn't like you were totally alone, right? This is true. I did have friends. I had, there were groups of friends. We, we did that, but I had like a friend and then, she had more friends. <laughs> that was how I fit into those groups um, in, in both places. Oh, I don't like there. I had some excellent times, but it's, uh, it was, yeah, that was, it was not something that I wanted to, uh, do for my kids. Um, if I ever had any, that was like the thing I like swore. I'm like, I'm never doing this. I'm, I'm never getting married, but if I get married, I'm never having kids, but if I have kids, I'm never yanking them back and forth. <laughs> and it's essentially all I've done. So <laughs> oh, wait, you're, uh, you're, you're, you said your ex-husband lives in Vegas or no? He does. He does. We are, but I, I don't know. Kids, the divorce doesn't, doesn't matter if they're uh, thousands of miles apart or, you know, a couple miles. It's just still awkward. And how do you fit? How many kids you got? I have three. And then how many, uh, how many siblings, like step siblings, did you have from your parents, like subsequent marriages or relationships? Um, I have half siblings. Uh, so in Illinois, I have my two brothers and my littlest sister, uh, Donald, Jonathan, and Lauren, um, those fabulous three. Uh, and then out here in Vegas, I have my other sisters who are Dana and Christian. They, of course, are all younger, but they are um, actually, funnily enough, they're my brothers and my two sisters are all, they showed up in the same year, so they're the same ages. My parents kind of timed that strangely, but there you go. <laughs> so, I'm seven years from me is I have a brother and a sister, and then two years after that, another brother and sister. And then my dad uh, had another girl um, when I was 16. I can't do that math, but yeah, many years later. <laughs> so how many is that? You got like what, five? I have five siblings. Five siblings, yes. three. Okay, so that, that, you've got a lot going on. And it sounds like you were a pretty inward, like bookish child. Uh, that's a correct yes. read. What were you reading as a kid? Um, whatever I could get my hands on. I was an indiscriminate reader. I, there were, I don't even think there was things I was, I didn't have favorite things. I just read everything. Um, so when I was in Illinois, uh, I read everything on my dad's shelf. So he, he was big into the James Bond types book, you know, man who saves the world kind of thing. So like Remo Williams uh, books um, and also science fiction. So you had John Carter of Mars by Ed Edgar Wright Sparrows. Um, some Heinlein. Uh, God, I just remember the cover of uh, Friday was one of those books. Robert Heinlein, Fr Friday and Stranger in a Strange Land. So I read all those on his shelf. And my mom was all 
fantasy for the most part. Um, and books were a really important thing for her. And she, you know, passed that on to me. You don't mistreat your books. You take good care of them. And also, I didn't get to read a book before she did if it was a new book. So I had to wait. Wow. It's like competitive. <laughs> well, it was like she treated them very well. And then she would ask them to her, you know, dirty hand daughter <laughs> who would like curl up in a corner with, you know, uh, some crackers and read her book. So, you know, she wanted it pristine and then she would hand it off to me and say goodbye to it. So wait, when she says, you know, take care of your book, like what, what are we talking about when it comes to the care of books or is she dusting them? Is she like placing them inside of glass cases? Like what, what is this? No, but they were, I mean, they, they left on shelves, but they were, you treated them well. Um, so you could come back and reread them. Um, oh. She taught me to love books. Like as, as much of what's in it as for the existence of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, th I, I respect that. And I'm interested in the idea that she did this and passed it along to you and it stuck. Like, I feel like I feel some sense of concern as a parent that if I try to push anything on my kids or try to pass anything along, they're just going to reject me. I'm like hesitant to ever be too overt. <laughs> what's the what's the method? I don't know because I failed because my kids were like, that's nice. And they go about their business. They read. They are readers. But they also, well, you know, they're the, the Kindle generation, my kids. They, you know, read on screens and things like that. It's a different thing. Ugh, it's depressing. So it is. It is. And I'm just, they're reading, though. This is what matters. This is what I tell myself. Right. My oldest is the one who maybe I got more of that into her but she's going to be 25 this year so oh wow how many and you what are your kids ages you got you got how many what's the what's the gender split or is there a gender split <laughs> i have uh my oldest is a girl and then i have two boys okay and as i like to say that's what i did with my 20s i had kids every four years i had a kid so uh 25 year old i have a 20 year old and i have a seven or 21 year old and a 17 year old wow Yep. Well, that's good. And they're, I mean, they're all relatively sane. Like you, you made it like to the point where they're. Uh, uh... Yes. Yes. Um, they're big, soft hearted kids. I don't, I wish I could be like, you know, you got to toughen up because the world's not going to give you anything. But mostly I'm like, be careful out there here. Take this book with you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, call me if you need me. Because I toughened up, but that was after I had them, or it was because I had them. I mean, yeah, I, re I wrestle with this, too, as a parent. Like, how much are you supposed to – I just don't have it in yeah. me to be, like, the, the – uh, like, the, I don't know, hyper-competitive coach dad or something, you know? Yeah. Well, I know a couple coach dads, and they're they're really – I guess they, they walk that line much better than I ever could. <laughs> Um, cause I can be uber competitive and I actively resist it. Like I just stay away from things that would, you know, flip that switch in me. Um, but, uh, my kids, I just, the world is so, it's just so much. And I just wanted to be the safe place they can come back to. And I guess, I don't know, 
Come hide behind your mother's aprons for a little while. I'll pretend that you're not here and protect you for a little bit longer. I don't know. It's like they're going to have to go out there. They're going to have to fall on their face. I just like them knowing that I'm there for them. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I think that's a good mom. But that said, I'm also a little, a little tough love. Like, <laughs> you got to be a little bit that way. Yeah. You know, you can't yeah. be, you can't be too ridiculously soft. Hey folks, if you are a writer, if you're somebody who's struggling to write, if you're trying to write a book but failing, if you're failing to write a book but wishing you could, if you've written a book but you're not sure if it's any good and you need to make it better, all of the above, you know what I'm talking about? I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. This is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond. Steve has been a guest many times on this show. I actually spoke with him on this very podcast about this very book not too long ago. You should listen to it. Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow is based on three decades of Steve's career, writing, failing, and trying again. Richard Russo calls it one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. This is a book that debunks the well-meaning but misguided myths that can hold us back from writing our deepest and most truthful work. It employs the same radical empathy that Steve displayed as co-host with Cheryl Strayed on the Dear Sugars podcast, and it will help you generate new work. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond. Available from Zando. So you said you're somewhat competitive, and that switch can be flipped. Talk to me about this. Uh... Just so I'm, I'm not very, very short, but I'm very short. <laughs> I'm five two. Um, but I used to play volleyball, uh, at, you know, like it was, this is what I signed up for, for a good chunk of my, uh, school life. Um, so I would get, and you know, you have to play net, you know how they used to do and you used to rotate through to get, you know, so everybody got a turn to serve and every, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. So I would play net, but if we had a choice, I was always at the net so I could like leap up and just smash the ball. <laughs> um, and I would get just enough height on it to really get it. Um, or I was serving and then it was, so you know where they, the, the balls, when you inflate them and they have the, you know, the little pinhole for the, 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 the needle to inflate it. And it used to say that like made in Taiwan or made in China or wherever. Right. So that was like the mark of a good serve. If you could just get that left on somebody's arm <laughs> on the other side when you scored that point, it was just like, yeah, that's what you get for coming here. <laughs> um, it's not my best feature. <laughs> what, like competitive volleyball? Just like that competitive sports strength? Yes, I get it very, it very much. Like just, I get all riled up. And it's not really the best look for me, <laughs> but um, it was something I loved, loved, loved to do. And I was, again, it was something I was good at. Like I knew I understood my limitations in it and I understood how I could perform well. And because I understood those things, um, I could just really just let loose and be aggressive. Um, but if I don't know, 
my the the limitations i don't know you know how i don't know all the rules are or how it's all supposed to work that i'm not terribly aggressive because i can't i can't afford to be because i don't know i don't know where any of the edges are the things i'm gonna the stumble so i'm a little timid in other places like does it ever manifest do you feel like it ever manifests for you creatively like are you ever competitive about writing um no, not not anymore. And even, I guess, I was never competitive about it. I took rejection really hard. Um, and I know, you know, you have to get that thick skin and get over it. But I took it really hard because I would always be like, well, you knew it was no good, so why did you send it out? <laughs> That's, like, I'm only, the only person I'm competitive with is myself. Like, it's just, I set the bar at I want to write something that's this good. Like, you know, for me, it's a Dennis Lane short story that I love. Like, if I ever, like, this is what I want. Something that rings true for me like this. And I keep writing towards that goal and fail. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that, that's what I do. What about getting in trouble? Like, you know, you're going back and forth from Vegas to Chicago as a young person bouncing from school to school you've got a little bit of angst you're sort of solitary did you ever get into any any trouble as a kid um i yes but it was more i mean do you mean like like running the streets the cops have to bring me home trouble or that sounds like good trouble to me but i'll take whatever trouble Uh, you got no i didn't do things like that i was incurably late it seemed for many many years um and would get in trouble for that of coming home late from being out with my boyfriend or uh that was typically it or just being waking up late being late for school um that was really the the thing um in illinois it was the because i was older when that really became a problem so I would I ended up grounded a lot for coming home late um that was really like I didn't get in trouble <laughs> Brad I didn't do bad things I didn't run the street I wanted to but I didn't do it you just stayed home and read, read some science fiction and <laughs> yes or I hung out at my friend's house and my dad had their names and their numbers and they would talk to their moms so <laughs> I was always on best behavior. I mean, uh, I probably had sex earlier than I should have, but that was, if there was trouble, that would probably be the only thing. (laughs) You know, Vegas was much the same. I, you know, I hung out at a few people's houses and they did things, but I did not. I witnessed things, but I did not participate. Were you designated driver on the on the on the strip? No, because I was afraid to drive. <laughs> you what? I was afraid to drive. I didn't get my license um, until uh, after I got married, uh, and my husband was like, "I'm buying a car. We need a car because we need to take our kid to the doctor eventually, and we can't be on a bus forever." So. My first car and my first driver's license came when I was 22. What were you scared of? Um, I had been hit by a lot of cars. So <laughs> I had a, a healthy fear of it. Um, 
I'd been hit uh, on my bike uh, in a crosswalk. Um, I was in a minivan. I got T-boned and we like rolled over and slid some. Uh, yeah, I, I, me and cars did not have a good relationship those early years. So I had no desire to learn to drive. Wow. So wait, you were hit as a, as a child while riding your bike? Yes. Um, I'm not saying it wasn't my fault. I'm just saying the car hit me. <laughs> so I was going to be late hauling butt down the, the, the street and the neighborhood street. And in Illinois, where we lived, uh, this was Evanston. Um, we had these alleys and the alleys had gravel in them. And I was coming across uh, this alley and the car that was in the alley saw me hit his brakes, but he slid across the gravel and that's what, and he, he hit me. So the, all I remember is like the grill of the car coming at me and then I'm flying through the air and then I hit a tree um, with my body <laughs> and half of my face. Yeah. That's how I spent the summer between seventh and eighth grade was like my face was healing from just being all scratched up and ugly from getting hit by a car. How fast was this guy going? Oh, I don't know. No, I don't. I don't remember any discussion of that in my uh, throughout any of the adults. I just remember the the, the block I lived on had a, a fire station, and they were the ones who picked me up. And all I remember was this man, and I knew him as, you know, Scott's dad. Scott's dad was like, oh. How, you okay? You're going to be okay. I'm going to call your dad, but you're going to be okay. How's Scott doing in school? Like anything to get my mind off of it, I guess. But that's what I remember. <laughs> and then another time you got hit when you were in a minivan. And was there another one too? Uh, in a crosswalk. The crosswalk one was super minor, but yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you didn't get like, you know, bowled over. It was just kind of a bump. No, no. The big accident was the minivan. Um, I was in a minivan with um, really good friends in high school. Uh, my best bud, uh, Florence, was in the you know the bench passenger seat, uh, the, the second row, I guess. Uh, and neither one of us had our seatbelt on. And our friend Stephanie was driving, and our friend Andy was in the passenger seat up front. And we were going through an intersection. I think we were going to rent videos. One Saturday night, and back when back when you people still rented videos, <laughs> yes, solidly. Gosh, then, uh, yeah, still the eighties, <laughs> I think, definitely the late eighties. Um, and I don't remember if we blew a stop sign or if the other car just didn't see us or whatever. But nonetheless, we went through the intersection, and another car hit us hard enough to throw us in to a roll and we were going, you know, on the roof and back on the tires and on the roof again um, and broke out all the windows. And I crawled out one side and my friend Florence crawled out the other side. And I just remember we walked around calling to each other. I was like 15. <laughs> so it was just like, it was the most traumatic thing. And then I couldn't find my friend. <laughs> what do you mean you couldn't find your friend? We were disoriented and we had crawled out different sides of the van. So literally we're standing on either one going, you know, Florence? And she's like, Nikki? And I'm Florence. Yeah, it was, it's really just funny now. 
but it was so like, oh my god, you're alive. Okay, good, good. When we like met up on like the back end of the car because we were circling it, calling each other. It's silly now, but it was very much. And everybody was okay. Everybody was relatively okay. Yeah, I ended up with stitches. Um, I think Stephanie and Andy um, had more issues. They were upside, so the van ended up upside down on its roof. So they were like hanging from their seatbelts. Um, and then all the glass that came at them. Um, so I think everybody has a few stitches. They definitely had like some really bad deep bruising. Um, but damn, you got, you must've got, you had to have gotten hit. You had to have gotten hit pretty hard if you, if you rolled the minivan. Oh, we got smacked. <laughs> like I have pictures of that van. Like that van is no, that van was totaled. Yeah. We were very lucky, very lucky. And then after that, you're like, I'm not going to drive. I, I think I'm, I think I've had enough of, I mean, did you even want to get into a car or was it, it was fine to be a passenger, but you didn't want to drive one? Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, I, I think eventually I figured out that that was why I didn't want to, after I got my license, I didn't drive with my kids in the car. I tried to drive when nobody was in the car. So if anything bad happened, it would just happen to me. Like, like I just, I couldn't stand it. Just the idea of it. Um, so I, yeah, like I drive, I have a great big old minivan now, but I drive around mostly by myself. What kind of minivan, what kind of minivan are you driving these days? I have a very reliable, uh, Chrysler town and country. Damn. It's very fancy. Does it have, does it have like the wood, (laughs) does it have like the wood paneling? (laughs) no 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 it's just a dark gray yeah it in a it you know the doors open with just a little key fob touch it's very fancy for me and so when you're in las vegas though you have to drive like it's not like chicago where you can get around on the train or something like that like in like vegas you you're either on the bus or you're in a car yeah it yeah you, you definitely need to drive um it is it is not a a it's too hot, frankly, I think, to, to walk anywhere. Um, and we're fairly spread out. But, yeah, you have to drive. And you have to have AC. I don't care. It's, it's, you know, you can have your windows down for just so long. And then it's, you know, if you're caught outside in the ugly part of the day and it's July, you don't want your windows down. You want <laughs> You want to be circulating cool air in your own little bubble um, until you get to where you're going so you can race out of your car and get to somewhere else that's cool now do you do you work like near the strip like what is your like like i feel like people who live in las vegas they don't interact with the strip that much the strip is for (laughs) tourists yes um i mean of course there are the people who work on the strip and work at those casinos and things like that but uh i i only go the strip when people come to town that's what you do. Like they want to go to the casinos yeah. and you got to take them. Yeah. <laughs> and even then, like, so my dad is big on, you know, he loves, he loves the casinos. He loves a little gambling. So he'll come out and he's like, I'm staying on the strip, but I'm going to come see you tonight. Um, so he'll stay on the strip and then drive to wherever I'm living. Um, and then I'll go with him to go gambling and then he'll drop me back off at home. <laughs> What's your favorite casino? Like, if you're a local, like, where would you, where do you, like, somebody comes to visit you, where do you take them? Take them to Caesar's Palace or? 
Um, I guess it depends on what I'm, I'm, if they just want to see the strip or see something on the strip, just to go and look and gawk at a casino. Yeah. I would just, honestly, we'd probably park at one end and just walk. Um, especially nowadays they have the, the tram that runs through a good chunk of it. So you can walk to one end and kind of take the tram back to nearly probably where you parked your car. Um, so that's interesting. I guess it's it, Sometimes I, I enjoy it because it has it's been a really long time and the person I'm with is really into it. So there's that. But I no, I don't go there for me ever. <laughs> so let's talk let's see if you have any good Vegas stories. So first of all, have you ever won oh. big money? Um or seen somebody win big money? Like have you ever had somebody with you like pull a slot and like walk away with a hundred thousand dollars or something or no. No, little jackpots, you know, 1200 250 bucks, things like that. Little jackpots. Right. Nothing big, nothing big. And I don't really play the table games. I mean, if you're going to get me on a table game, I, it's going to be blackjack. Um, I'm, I, can, I feel like I can hold my own in that. <laughs> you know, again, I know, I know how to work the, a table. You know, and what I've learned from my dad and, you know, depending on where you're set is, you know, where the cards come to you and how how much you need to worry about the people who are before you and things like that. So, uh, but no, I, I don't win big money. My dad, my dad could bring, bring down some big money when he played. But again, that was blackjack and whatnot. The slots, the slots are never good for me. No. Or for anybody I know. <laughs> I find it depressing seeing somebody sitting there at like five o'clock in the morning just pulling slots with like a cup of tokens or whatever. <laughs> what are you fucking doing? Yeah. But I think it's like especially that that picture you've just described, it's very much like watching television. It's it gets to be kind of a mindless act. Cause you there's no control over what you're doing. You know, you're just putting it in and pulling that handle and hoping. <laughs> like there's it's, a, it's more ex- more expensive than watching television, though. You're sitting there throwing well, money yeah. into this thing. <laughs> yes, and if you're smart, you are playing like a nickel slot, so you can just spread whatever thrill you get out of it longer. <laughs> so uh, you live in a place like Vegas is sort of like New Orleans in this way, but maybe like maybe more intensely, where people go there to have the most debaucherous, insane, <laughs> depraved experience of their lives. Like that's the whole point. And yes. what I find interesting in the times that I've gone to Vegas is I feel like there's this great dynamic in the airport where you see people arriving and you see people leaving. And it's very, mm-hmm. very different. The people who are just arriving in Vegas, they have all that energy, they have all that hope, they have all that darkness. They're ready to go crazy. <laughs> and then you see the people who are leaving Vegas and they like, they have the shakes. They're broke. They might puke. <laughs> they, they feel like they need to get tested for an STD. I mean, God only knows. But, but it's like just, a, they've just been completely decimated and they're trying to get on an airplane back to like, you know, wherever it is. And, uh, I guess like when you're living there, if you don't really go to the strip very often, you probably don't have proximity to this, but maybe you run into this sort of stuff every once in a while. Like are are there incidental uh, experiences where 
you run into people who are completely out of their mind just because, you know, you live in Vegas and they're in Vegas and things have gotten off the rails? The closest I ever come to that is anytime I fly out of the city <laughs> or fly home. So, it, it, I mean, it's like you said, people are coming, they're amped, they're just, you know, whatever darkness, like you said, what they were bringing with them. But people come here to misbehave, to uh, follow whatever impulse that they have to work out of their system. And then they go back home and they're, you know, whatever they are at home, you know, very straight laced, they're very suit tie, what have you. But you come to Vegas to get your drink on and to show your ass, kind of. <laughs> what do you think about that? What's your relationship to that, like, as the the draw of the city? Like, do you like the fact that it's Sin City or is it something that, like, you find exhausting and... Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's your relationship to the identity of Las Vegas as somebody who kind of grew up there and, and makes her home there? Oh, uh, so that's kind of a, a evolving thing for a long time. Um, I sincerely, deeply believe that Vegas is a place where you get your start at, but you do like the middle part, the raising your kids or what have you elsewhere. And then when you retire, you can come back to Vegas then, you know, someplace warm, um, some kind of recreation you might like. Uh, but, and it's good that way. But that middle part you were supposed to do somewhere else, um, except I didn't do that middle part somewhere else. I did it here. So um, it, 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 it was hard for me because I wanted things for my kids that I didn't feel I could get here in Vegas. Um, I mean, Chicago in particular, Chicago was like this ideal for me. I mean, you know, Shad Aquarium, all the museums, all just, just, I guess all the culture and all the history that is in Chicago. Right. Um, that's what I wanted to share with my kids. And in Vegas, um, so much of what, you hear that or, or what's easily readily available is, you know, the mob used to run this place and look at all these movies and how people come here and they get drunk and they, you know, lose everything here. You know, I mean, it is exhausting sometimes, but then there's like little pockets of, of great things here. Um, you know, the revitalization of downtown Las Vegas um, you know, where, you know, Fremont Street experience and things like that. I mean, there's, there's first Fridays that happen here. Um, wait, what did you just, just say? There's what, there's what Fridays for first Fridays? Um, there's art shows and, uh, just street performances, but every first Friday is the, the first Friday of the month. Oh, that okay. Happens. Oh, okay. Yeah. Where is downtown Las Vegas? Is that the Strip, or is that different than the Strip? No, that's different than the Strip. That's the old, uh, I mean, well, it's downtown. It's where uh, Union Plaza um, is. It's, uh, gosh, it's Main Street, and I don't know. It's, it's, you know. The Strip comes and meets into it, but it's the older 
part of town. It's the part that doesn't get torn down and built up again like the Strip does or did in its heyday. Um, I mean, because that's what the Strip is. The Strip is always um, imploding something and building something newer, bigger, shinier. And downtown is a little quieter, a little... It's just a different thing. That's good, though. You need a different thing. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, there's little restaurants. You know, they're you know, some of them are pricier. But you get... It's a slower vibe down there, I feel like. Um, I mean, but it's places to eat. It's without uh, a slot machine constantly going... Or all those noises going on in the background. Yeah, I can't um, deal. That's what that's what I always remember whenever I'm leaving <laughs> Las Vegas. It's just shut those fucking machines up. I can't take it anymore. Yes, and you know the, they've gotten away. There's not the sounds of the coins anymore, but now they just mimic the sounds of the coins hitting. Yeah, now. Yeah, just mocking like, you. You can't not have it. <laughs> so do you? You know, you write stories that involve crime. Uh, yes. Las Vegas is obviously a, you know there's a lot of mob. Uh, there's a lot of mob in Las Vegas and in the history mm-hmm. of Las Vegas, there is mm-hmm. more than a, um, more than like a, a minor whiff of criminality about the place. I have to imagine that this is part of what factors into your imaginative world. Like it did, did that element of Las Vegas like preoccupy you when you were a young person? Um, or did it, is it something that you came around to as you started to write, um, like crime fiction or, do you know what I'm saying? Like, So I began to seriously write in, like, I guess, 2006. Um, and what drew me was I really wanted to write science fiction, but I was bad at it and realized that really early on. So that was good. But so my other love were was mysteries and, and things like that. So when I settled into, okay, this is the thing I want to write. And, you know, you read all the, the, the classics and I went online and like lurked in all the, the, the list serves and everybody was talking about it um, to figure out what it meant to write crime. Um, and I knew what I liked and I knew what I didn't. Um, and then well, wait, understanding wait, what, what did you what did what? you like what did you like and what didn't you like i like to watch i mean traditional mysteries um uh, a police procedural um you know i mean i uh you know jessica fletcher murder she wrote you know those were you know columbo all of that i could watch that till the end of days like just forever um, but that wasn't something I was interested in writing uh, because it, it, I wanted to understand or, or at least play in those places where the people who did the bad thing were also the ones who pumped your gas for you, you know, who did that, that, you know, maybe cut your lawn every week because you lived across the street for them and maybe you broke your leg or whatever. I mean, they're the nice people, the people you wouldn't think anything of, you know, the, the, the classic, you know, he was such a nice guy. I would have never thought, 
you know, and I'm like, what is it about that person? How did they, how do you get to be that person who can live both sides of that life? You can put out this exterior of regular person who would never, you know, would never do anything bad. And I don't know, you've got a body in a fridge in your freezer, in your garage, you know, it's, it's that, that idea of the calm exterior and the chaos behind it is what ultimately I latched onto. It's interesting to hear you say that. Cause, uh, do you get the, do you have like the neighborhood app? What's it called? Or next door? What is it called? Next door. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> so I get these, uh, email notifications. Like I don't, I try not to spend any time on this thing. Cause I think it just makes you crazy. <laughs> Uh, like yes. I, I, I get like, you know, it's nice to be warned if there's like something crazy happening in your neighborhood. But mm-hmm. when we were growing up, nobody warned us about shit. Like you just <laughs> dealt with it. Yes. <laughs> I don't, I feel like, yeah. the, I feel like the upside of getting forewarned is, uh, mitigated by the downside of constantly feeling like everything is shitty. Cause you get a notification every day that something terrible has mm-hmm. happened, but this woman uh, makes a notification, and the headline, I'm going to read it to you. I have it right in front of me. She says, <laughs> okay. man walking around saying, I will kill women. So this is what shows up in my email. And she wow. says, don't want to scare anyone, but I thought I should uh, <laughs> put, a wa- put a warning out. I was walking my dogs and heard a man speaking loudly across the street. I assumed he was talking to someone on the phone. But when he started saying some strange things, I turned to observe him. And he was on the opposite side of the street carrying what looked to be a black pet carrier. I realized he was not on the phone. And he was saying, I will judge you. I will kill women. I am a man. And I mean, over and over again. So, so she just keeps going on about this guy. And then she posts a picture of him. And he's mm-hmm. walking in front of these uh, this beautiful like bush. It's like blooming with pink flowers. It's, like, it's, mm-hmm. kind, it's kind of a beautiful <laughs> photograph. But the point is that I was expecting as I was reading this for this guy to be like some like like batshit crazy kind of like dirty homeless like somebody with like a, either a drug addiction or some kind of like very like visit like physically visible chemical imbalance Do you know what i'm saying like yes. I, I, I was imagining the type and as it turns out it's kind of like this like sort of looks like antonin scalia the former supreme <laughs> court justice <laughs> like he's he's got like a collar wow. he's got like a collared shirt on and he's wearing a watch and he's sort of tan with his hair. He looked like, you know, he doesn't look like unkempt. I'm like, what the fuck is going on with this guy? And <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's sort of the same thing. Like you just don't know what's going on with people and nope. uh, what happened to them or what's going on in their wiring. Yeah. You never know. You never know. Um, that is, and I, I feel like it's, it's a lot of with Vegas too. Vegas puts out this facade of, you know, you know, come here to have your fun. We won't talk about it. We promise come here to have your fun. Um, and then it's the, you know, sh- bright, shiny lights. And then, uh, and then when you're in, you know, the quiet of your hotel room, when nobody's around to see you, you know, are you still drinking that much? Are you still acting like that? Like, cause nobody's here to watch, you know, I mean, it's, is it, it's all performance, but once you go in your room, there's nobody to see your performance anymore. So you should just calm down and be, you know, regular you. You don't have to be on anymore. You know, you can, you know, 
take a shower, put, you know, put your feet up and just relax. And I think there's, it's hard to unwind from all the intensity of the, the bright lights and all of that. And the, 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 the feeling that you have to perform to be that intense and bright and shiny um, and to be more than, than you are all the time when you come to Vegas to, to visit, you know, I mean, you go back to your regular life and your regular life is, you know, normal and stayed and, you know, muted Browns. I don't know, but Vegas, it's always bright and shiny and, you know, lights are going off and there's loud noises and uh, everyone's bathed in light and it's good light and everybody looks good or mostly good. Uh, or if you drink enough, everybody's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I feel like whenever I, this is one of my fundamental problems with Las Vegas and uh, New Orleans as like a tourist experience is, the, is staying in the hotel rooms because I'm always like, what the fuck went on in this room? Like, what am I? Like, <laughs> get me the black light. Let me see what's happening. In no, here. Yeah. never do that. Well, I mean, no. the thing, but the truth is that the truth hurts, <laughs> but we need to know. I don't want to be sleeping in this no. filth. I understand. Just take the bedspread off. Oh, God. <laughs> no. No. You don't want to know. You either commit to the hotel room or not. <laughs> so let me ask you about uh, crime. Uh, yes. Have, have you ever like witnessed or been at close range to crime in Vegas or in your life that made an impression on you and that got you thinking about these things? Or is it truly just a result of uh, popular culture and loving murder she wrote. Like, do you have any personal experiences um, in that like way that might have colored your, um, you know, your interest in writing about it? Um, no. And I'm going to, I'm going to go with that's a good thing. <laughs> um, but no, I don't have any, anything that came at least not in the beginning. Um Later on, I found out things, and I suppose I could. Oh, eh, eh. So I have a stepdad uh, who's now dead, but he did things when uh, before he married my mom, and uh, finding that out has kind of colored everything I've written since then. So that was like 2012 when I found out things about him. Um. But in general, no, I just have a fascination with people doing bad things and trying to get away with it. That makes sense. You know, I was hoping for, <laughs> I was hoping for something really cinematic, but I know I'm again, I'm very boring. People are, you know, it just tell me something good that's happened in Vegas. I'm like, nothing's happening here. It's the strip and like the suburbs that surround the strip. Like, <laughs> You know, I mean. So you live, you live, you live like a suburban existence, essentially. Yes, I mean, bad things happen here. Um, you know, this it's like any other city. People go missing. People are found in the desert. Well, um, that's what I mean, though. It's like with the uh, with the gambling debt. I gotta believe there are people. Yeah. Who, there are got there have got to be people who get into serious money trouble in Las Vegas. For sure. And if you, you know, wind up in, in debt to the wrong person, like it can get, you wind get up ugly. in the desert. <laughs> yeah. You wind up out in that yeah. desert. That happens. Yeah. You hear about that in the news. That happens on a regular basis. 
I wouldn't say on a regular basis, no. But the things that you hear about are probably the same thing, or, you know, the things that I would hear about are things that you're going to hear about, or, you know, because it's going to be a nationwide uh, report. I mean, it's like when uh, Binion died and then the, the, the couple were, you know, trying to break into his, you know, stashes of treasure out in the desert, you know, they were caught digging that up. Um, things like that. Uh, I mean, Benny Binion's famous. Who's that? Well, I don't even know who that is. What is it? Uh, Union Plaza. Okay, so now we're getting vague about that. It's been so long. Um, he was behind Binion's... I guess it's just Binion's. Is it just Binion's? Ah. But he owned a casino. His father owned the casino. Then he took it over. Um, I think they hold the World Series of Poker there. Uh, at least they did for a lot of years. Um, but he owned this casino, and uh, I believe he died of uh, not natural causes. And the woman that he was involved with was also involved with someone else. And after his death, they were caught trying to steal, uh, I guess, silver that was buried out in the desert at some spots that he had out there. He buried silver in the desert? Yeah, I don't know if there was like a like on his property that he had out there. Um, God, I was so into it for so long, and I've forgotten so much now. Um, I just find it fascinating. He's obviously a wealthy guy <laughs> if he if he owns a casino yes. and he's burying like bars of silver out in the desert. That's what I remember. Yes, but it, the bigger thing was not that he had. I mean, yeah, that's essentially buried treasure out in the Las Vegas desert, but it's also the he had a younger lover and she had her own lover. Um, and they, I mean, it, it doesn't matter where you are in the country. That tale goes on, you know, the older guy and the younger girlfriend and the girlfriend has a boyfriend and suddenly the older guy's dead. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's that typical story. I mean, it's, uh, what's her name? Um, uh, Anna, Anna Nicole Smith. That wait the the model the mo- she died too right yeah yes she died too but she was she married the the man who was in his seventy or eighties when he died and he left her a bunch of money and his family subsequently sued her for it to try to get it um, you know gold digger things like that and ultimately um, she ended up dying later on and that whole I mean framing of that but it's still the old man and the younger woman and then somebody dies wait 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 now you're because remember do you remember like anna nicole smith there was like a period where she was like the most famous person in popular culture i recall and then like when she died why do i remember like she had a daughter and then there was that that, daughter who was the guy who was like her guardian do you know what i'm saying do you remember him the guy the guy i want to say he was like her anna nicole's manager Something like that. I think for a while, and they became involved, and she had his child. And then they split up, and I think, did he sue for custody or something like that? Well, she was getting sued by the, the sons of the older man she was married to. And didn't, like, and she um, she wound up getting all that money from that old dude. Like, she won, right? I, she... I believe so. 
And then, of course, when she died, it went to her daughter. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. yeah. This week, someone needs to write a book about this. This could be fun. <laughs> I'm but it's sure like, there is one, honestly. It was, it was interesting to me. It's like the intensity of the fame that I'm see, I seem to remember surrounding mm -hmm. her and how like the culture has like almost totally moved on. Like there was a time where yeah. if, if you would told me like, it just seemed like there was like, this was like a Marilyn Monroe thing. Like, Oh my God, this is yes. going to be, this is going to be a saga that we like live with forever. And no, not really. It's over. People have moved on. No one, I can't even remember the names of anybody anymore. Yeah. But I always remember her. I mean, and her like guests, uh, she was a, a model for guest jeans. Uh huh. Okay. And I remember those those ads. And yeah, I mean the the I in my brain she's still linked to Marilyn Monroe because that was the look she evoked. Okay. Um. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But yeah, we all move on. I mean, everything's fifteen minutes or so. Um. Unless you put yourself back out there, you know, like I don't know, OJ. <laughs> <laughs> He does. He, you know, he he's not in Vegas anymore. He's probably down in Florida. He used to be in Vegas. He got arrested in Vegas. Yeah, he was in jail in Vegas, and he got out and, and hoofed it. <laughs> God, yeah. Know. What about when there was that big, terrible uh, shooting in Vegas? Were you living there when that happened? Uh, yeah, that was was it two years ago now. Was that I really think it was two years ago? That's all that it was. Yeah. Oh my God. It seems like, I mean, it's, there's been so many and like so much shit has happened that it feels like it was like a decade ago. Yeah. But you were yeah. living there. Yes. Yes. That was, God, was it 2015? No. So that would make it like five years. It can't be. Now I have to like figure this out. Uh, 17? No, because that would have been the same year that. Was Obama still president or not? That's the question now, which makes it four years ago. So it's not three years ago. Okay. Well, that's making me feel better. It was a, I don't it was a few years ago <laughs> and obviously awful, but like, did it, uh, like, did you, what was your experience of the city? Like that must've changed things for a while or did it not? Did they just kind of try to move on? It definitely changed things. It changed how some practices of large groups, uh, were held in security for those. Um, you know, it's sad that I can't remember when this went down because I remember where I was. I remember hearing the sirens and wondering why there were so many sirens going by. Where were you? Uh, uh, I was at work actually. It was the middle of the night. Um, and I was at work working late on a project and, uh, where my office is located is, I mean, you can see the strip from where I'm at. We're kind of close to the airport. Um, and that's the strip and you can just hear you just, and in the middle of the night, you know, the traffic's down and whatnot like that. You just hear the, the endless sirens that ran. That's what I remember. Damn. Yeah. That was, that was quiet super... office <laughs> and just sirens. So what are you working on now? Anything? You writing anything? I'm desperately trying to write something. Uh, I, I, for all of my, uh, talking about writing, I I kind of fell out of it for a while, um, and I wish I could pinpoint like that's what did it to me, so I could never do that thing again. But <laughs> well, how does it fit? How does it with with three kids? I mean, I know your kids are kind of grown, but it's still a lot. And then you've got a full time job doing this engineering thing. Like, where does the writing fit in? 
Um, it's more like stolen moments, I guess. When my kids were younger, um, solidly, like, I don't know, 2007 to 2012, like those four or five years there, I wrote constantly. Like, I I was writing on my lunch. I was writing on post notes in between when I was supposed to be doing other things. I would... Wait, 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 wait. You were writing ahead. on you were writing on post-it notes? Yes. Cause I could like write something real quick on a post-it note and then I could like stick it on the inside of my purse and not forget it. <laughs> but I would be like, oh, that's good. Yeah, I know. That that line of dialogue will push that along. Okay, good, good, good. And I'd write it on a post-it note and stick it in my purse. And if I got a chance later on, I would go like log on and go get my file from like Dropbox or whatever. And then work on the actual document there at my office in between. Um, and then when I would come home, I would do, you know, there'd be dinner, everybody'd go to bed or, you know, there's playtime in between. Um, everybody would sit around or like there two nights a week, there was wrestling and all the kids would gather around. And my husband was big on that. And they would just, they, they would watch wrestling and I would have my laptop out or I would just have a notebook out and I would be writing something. And it was constant. Every spare moment I wrote, it was glorious. And I say that because now, now it takes me forever to get out anything. <laughs> What's the difference? Do you think you just had like some sort of weird like wave of energy back then? or? I think it was new. I think it was... Um... The I was figuring things out and I, it was so exciting and I didn't know how much misery can come from trying to publish. Um, it was just it was just great. Um, writing was great. Revising was better. It was just good all the way around. Uh, and, you know, and it just like fed on itself. You know, it was just a ball of energy and I could just it just went. And I just rolled along with it. And at some point, it stopped. And I just, by 2012, I was pretty much not writing. And I mean, you know, there's all the things that, you know, the the half-finished stories and things like that. I had those and eventually finished some of those stories. But it, it it took me years to finish some of those things. Like I literally was still finishing stories that I wrote in 2009, um, two years ago. So 20, yeah, 2017, 2018. That happens sometimes though. It takes a while. There's an incubation period and you got to just kind of sit with them for a long time. But I wasn't writing anything new in the, in in the interim. Mm. Like that's all I had were these fragments of stories. So that's all I clung to. (laughs) Like, I'm like, okay, I can make this story better. And like, I could see what was wrong with the things and I could put, but I could not make, I could not generate new work. So I don't, I don't know why that is, but like, I just ran out of steam. And so I'm like, okay, I could revising, adding to stories is a lot like revising. So that was, I could do that, but just to, to have an idea and make a brand new fully formed story. I could not do that. Is that where you are right now? Are you do you feel like you've run out of steam right now? Um, I'm 
I think I'm getting a little bit of it back. Uh, I had uh, um, a guy who's a, a friend now um, read something that I finally got published. And he was like, do you want to be part of this noir thing? And you can come, you know, get on this podcast and, and read, you know, read something new. And, you know, just read for like five or ten minutes. So I had to write something new. I forced myself to do it. And that was 2016, I think. Um, and that little bit, like literally, it was like 700 words. Um, but that pushed me back into writing. Hmm. I feel like when I get, when I, when I find myself feeling empty, it's usually because I'm not reading enough. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Does that resonate at all? Or because it sounds like you're kind of like a total, like devoted reader, but if I'm not, if I have nothing to say, it's usually because I'm not taking anything in. Yeah. I mean, I, I was always reading something though. Um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I want to say, well, I was frustrated and I was unhappy in my marriage and all of these things worked against me and made it so, you know, something had to give. And that was the first thing that went. Hmm. That makes and sense. then my marriage went. <laughs> well, okay. But you know what? That's interesting because I feel like, uh, maybe especially in the context of like a show like this or a conversation around mm -hmm. writing explicitly, like we often talk about writing in the, in the way that it relates to like our day job or our need to breadwin or whatever. But mm -hmm. there's also other dynamics that it works with or against, you know, like relationships, uh, marriages, uh, parenthood, uh, relationships with your own parents or siblings like all mm -hmm. of this stuff factors in. And if something is drawing a lot of energy out of you, you know, then suddenly, yeah, the creative work is going to atrophy or you're not going to have the kind of juice that you used to have or the kind of space or time that you might need to read and to write. Yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely see that. Um, you know, I think last year was my most productive year. I finished like four stories um, three found homes and one is probably forever broken, but I still wrote four stories. I mean, that's still like 20,000 words I wrote and revised and, you know, rewrote and all of that. But that's easily the most I've written in, in just years and years of brand new material, not finishing something brand new material. And I was so excited, <laughs> like just pat myself on the back. It was great. And my sister, that was something she wanted to know. She's like, why are you, why do you think this is happening? And uh, I said, well, I kind of gave up on dating and men. So look, all this energy I have now. See, there you go. That's the key <laughs> right there. Just give up on love and write fiction. Yes. Yes. I'll be alone forever, but that's okay. <laughs> Lonely writers are best. Yeah. <laughs> They're the most productive, maybe. I don't know. But I think, you know, uh, when it comes to that stuff, uh, like like relationship stuff or uh, mm. especially you got to just it's so hard and like mm. who am I who am I to give advice it's so hard because i feel like you sorta on the one hand have to make an effort nothing's going to happen yeah. if you don't put yourself out there but yes i think at the same time you almost can't care too much 
and you <laughs> you kind of have to be it maybe it's sort of like writing you sort of have to be divorced from any kind of uh, idea of results do you know what i'm saying like i feel like when yes. when a person is sort of like ah i could take it or leave it that's usually when they're in a good space to find a new relationship versus when they're like oh my god i'm all alone you know help me <laughs> help me take me in from the cold and then suddenly you're in a relationship with some jackass who's you know <laughs> oh you're hurting my heart brad <laughs> there's no eye in tinder um, so yeah yeah <laughs> well i mean you know maybe it could maybe it could lead to some good fiction who knows sometimes you could uh you could find inspiration in strange places yeah all i seem to write about are broken hearts and just you know people trying to find love or get out of it uh, nobody's ever happy in it that's the one thing <laughs> that's never in my fiction somebody's miserable and cheating or they're trying to trying to find somebody and miserable that way well you know what i think this whole idea <laughs> i have strong feelings about this this idea that we seem to have uh, constructed uh, mm -hmm. in the western world or maybe uh, in particular in america that's obviously like the context that i'm in but this mm -hmm. idea that your marriage is supposed to make you happy or that your relationship is supposed mm -hmm. to it's supposed to be so like like this just like joy machine that just like feeds you joy and you're so happy together and it's just like this laugh riot. And I don't know anybody. I literally don't know anybody who has a relationship like that. Not that there can't be moments of happiness and joy, but like this, mm -hmm. just this idea that it's supposed to provide this for you, I think is a lot of the reason why so many relationships go belly up because they're like, well, I'm not happy. This is work. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. this, this person's like a grumpy asshole today. And I don't know. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like this yeah. I, I feel yeah. like there's like yeah. this idealized vision of what it's supposed to be like when the truth is that it's like kind of like a, like an often humiliating, like you feel exposed. This person sees you at your worst. You see them at their mm -hmm. worst. You got to like get through that <laughs> and like somehow, yeah. uh, you know, it's like find the redeeming qualities. Anyways, like, it's a, uh, it's a lot of work, and it's a. Uh, I don't know. The way that I've always couched it to myself is that relationship is going to work best when both parties are approaching it from the perspective of what they can give, as opposed to what they can get. And no, oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Listen to me giving love advice. <laughs> it's uh, well, no, I mean it's it's the best part of being married for me was the contentment I felt L literally just being next to him. Like it, this, I mean, we're not talking the, the, the highs of, I, I mean, literally I'm just talking about just holding his hand was great. <laughs> like that's, that's, and I feel that it doesn't feel like that's such a really high you know, bar to meet, but it just seems impossible now. What happened? Like, I mean, may I ask if it's, if it was just great, it sounds like you, I mean, did you not want to get divorced? Um, no, it was ultimately, I was the one who called it. Oh, you did. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I won't, um, I, mean, I don't want to push you to like, you know, <laughs> disclose the details of your marriage, but I'm just, it just, the question popped into my head because you were making it sound so good. I was like, Oh wow. He's good at holding hands. 
<laughs> I adored him. Um, until I didn't. Until it got really hard. Those last few years that we were together were the hardest and the worst. And we were unhappy, not necessarily with each other, but deeply unhappy. And I was willing to do something about that. And I was the only one who was really on board for that. So I called it. Like willing to like, uh, what therapy or to change, to be like, okay, we need to aggressively go at this. Like we cannot exist like this anymore. We have kids. We can't be these people. So let's go talk to somebody. Right. And you know, you get, or, or what you're going to divorce me. And I was like, you know, yeah. <laughs> and that was the end of my marriage. And that That's, was it. That conversation. That was it. Well, you know, yeah. you got to be willing. It, can't, it takes two to tango. You can't have one person yeah. who wants to do all that work and then somebody else just be like, nah, status quo is fine with me. Yeah. Yeah. It is not. Uh, it did not go over well <laughs> with the, with our children. Well, when, but does, it, uh, when does it ever? Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, I did the thing that I swore I wouldn't do. Um, the thing that I had to do when I was a kid, you know, um, and, 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 and at the very least my kids have had each other. Um, whereas I was alone kind of going back and forth. Um, but it, I did what I swore I wouldn't do. And I just forever, I'm going to kick myself over that. You ever thought about writing about it? <sighs> Mm, yes. Um, but I'm, that's many years away if I ever wrote about it at all. I feel like that's wise. It's like a wise thing to say. <laughs> like so that's the self-knowledge right there. Like, I think I need some time to let this, what, digest or get, get some perspective on. I mean, cause that was, uh, I mean, 20 years, 20 years with somebody. Damn. Um, and that's how that went out. Um, so yeah, I'm gonna, I think I write about aspects of it, but I don't come at it as directly as I do other things. Um, I mean, I write about parents who aren't there, um, even if they're just in the background and, you know, they're, they're not there for reasons. I have, you know, divorced parents or, or what have you, kids going back and forth, but never, here's you know two people who are married and miserable and why is that and you know the the ripples that come from that and the rest of their family and their life and i just i think i need decades <laughs> that'll be that'll be like your mic drop that'll be like your closing your closing <laughs> uh, remarks uh, in life you know like finally get that one out but what i'm kind of amazed when i read these memoirs by people who like have these relationships the relationship implodes and then like mm -hmm. three years later, they're like, here it is. Like, this is <laughs> yes. here's my, here's my memoir. Here's my memoir of, of the divorce. And it's like, man, that's some, either <laughs> some ballsy writing or some quick processing or both, you know, to go there. Yeah. I feel like those people have a therapist and have been journaling the whole time. The, 
you know, like dealing with it in, in increments as it's been happening. So at the end of it, it's just not all just this freight train of emotion. They've dealt with so much of it already. I, Cause no, I have a freight train that I'm just dragging behind me. <laughs> so no therapy, <laughs> no therapy, just drag it on with me. And what about a journal? Yet. Did you keep a journal? No, I was never that kid. I never wrote in diaries. I, uh, when I decided I wanted to write, you know, the, like the books that I was reading, um, which was basically like, uh, God, I remember one and it stands out because it was the one I tried to mimic the most. It was like a high schooler with, and she like meets a ghost and they fall in love. I know, I know, <laughs> but that was like the, the, like that was just everything to me, except I wanted to insert a black girl. <laughs> everything else the same so it was always romance and i just wanted to have it be a black girl in there so why don't you write it um i do that now i i that's that's ultimately i'm like i want to write i don't know you know and then there were none i just want with black people in it i want i want to write murder she wrote except angela lansbury is a black woman it's like uh, it's like Pam Greer as Angela Lansbury in Murder <laughs> Shoot. Yes, now that is a sell right there. <laughs> Aren't you in LA? You should you should get somebody to pitch that. That's right. Yes, there we go. You just come up with it. Just guaranteed right my there. future. Where is Shonda Rhimes right now? We have it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I just. I really like writing about the people committing the crimes. I really like trying to like write this perfect world for them and watch them screw it up. Yeah. Which maybe says a lot about me, but <laughs> I've been thinking about that a lot lately, actually just the ways in which people fuck their lives up. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes too, the way fate, uh, just kind of has it in for certain people. Uh, mm. Like it can, uh, like people can, people can get into a lot of trouble almost by accident sometimes or before they mm. realize how much trouble they're in, you know? And yeah, know, it's just, life is messy. And uh, we think mm. we have all this control. So we think we have all this control over what's going on, and how we're, how we're behaving and conducting our lives. And I think, I think on a certain level, you have to pretend that this is the case because, you know, what else? Otherwise, you're just going to go completely off the rails, you know, into like nihilism. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think there's a strong element of us not being in control at all in the way that we often think we are. And it takes some luck. I don't know. It's complicated. But I think I've been reading books that sort of deal in this kind of thing that have made, been making me think about it. And then just looking around, you know, at the world, the way things turn out, the way certain people turn out and what they get mixed up in, uh, it's never clean and easy or like, or I should say mm-hmm. it's, it's rarely clean and easy. It's always, um, I don't know. There's always, if you dig deep enough, there's always going to be parts of the story that, uh, give you pause. Oh, always. <laughs> You know, that is the thing. You never get out clean. You you live your life, you know, maybe the best way you can. But 
there's these moments where you're supposed to, you know, you ought to go right. But at the same time, if I went left, would anybody catch me? If I went left just this one time, is that really a bad thing? And then I'll go right from all the rest of the time. And, you know, people's whole lives fall apart because they made that one minor detour. Should I go to my job at this civil engineer's <laughs> office or should I rob this <laughs> bank? Just once. <laughs> yes. Or, you know, though, honestly, it would be, you know, do I grow old or do I, you know, do rob this bank so I can, they can put me in jail, but then my kids get my house and they're taken care of and I don't have to worry about them and I can grow old in jail. Write some great books. That's the, <laughs> you know, there's, there's the, the story of that. I mean, the, the suburbs, I'm fascinated the suburbs and that's really, that's the, you know, the fifties, June Cleaverness, you know, the, the clean, ordered, stayed, you know, this is how everybody's life should be. This is the picket fence. This is everything. And, you know, what did it take to get the picket fence and the nice house? Um, what wouldn't you do to get that? What wouldn't you do to keep it? You know that Eddie Haskell just died from Leave it to Beaver. Oh, no. Yeah. I want to I say I saw, the, I saw the news yesterday. He just died. Oh, everybody. Yeah. Fred Willard. Right. Now. Right. Oh, terrible. Um, and, uh, what's his Lynch name? Shelton. Yeah. That's, that's horrible. That one, that one's yeah. I mean, yeah. young, but, um, yeah. what was the guy from, uh, Siegfried and Roy? One of the, one of those guys. Oh, died. Roy he, Horn. Yeah. He, he died. Of he COVID. died. Yeah. He was the, the, he was the one of Siegfried and Roy who was mauled by the tiger. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I got to say, like, I'm not a big fan of having tigers, you know, as pets. Oh. And Like, leave the tigers alone. Yeah. Why, why do you need to have a magic show with tigers? Yes. I mean, I know it's, like, you know, exciting, but leave the tigers alone. These are killer animals. Keep, put them out in the wild. But it's Vegas, Brad. You I have know. to have a little of everything. I know. You have know. to have all of it. Did I, <laughs> I was going to say, did I tell you about the time? Of course not. Um I'm driving from one of a job I had in Henderson and traffic's held up because there's peacocks from Wayne Newton's property or the property he used to own had gotten out and were blocking traffic. No. Why are, why are there peacocks in Vegas? <laughs> Would you ever see, uh, do you ever see Mike Tyson's pet tiger anywhere in Las Vegas? No, I yeah. didn't know about that. Oh, okay. Didn't he have a pet tiger? <laughs> I don't know. I want to say, did probably. You, did you I mean... ever see the like in the movie The Hangover? They go to Mike Tyson's house and they steal his tiger. <laughs> I haven't seen that movie or its oh. sequel. All oh, right, you, you're like I, I live here. I don't have to see it. <laughs> I tend to stay away from it. Um, there, the only thing like, what was, oh god, I think it was called Vegas with like Dan Tana, but it was a TV show. That's the Vegas that I grew up watching while I lived here. <laughs> All right. Well, it's been fun talking with you. Uh, congratulations on your book. Good luck with, uh, you know, the writing life. I think it's going to come around. I think you just got to stick with it. Thank you. I appreciate you talking with me and, and I appreciate you listening to the show. Uh, it's been my pleasure. 
Okay, guys, there you have it. That is Nikki Dolson. Her story collection is called Love and Other Criminal Behavior. It's available now from Bronzeville Books. You can find Nikki on the internet at NikkiDolson.com. You can find her on Twitter at Nikki Dolson. Again, the story collection is called Love and Other Criminal Behavior. Available now from Bronzeville Books. Go get it. The Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available for free. More than 650 episodes. Support the show if you can. Do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget, too, that the you can get other people gear at otherppl.com, the show's official website. There's a little, uh, you'll see it in the sidebar. You get t-shirts, they're super soft. You can get a sweatshirt. You can get a tank top. <laughs> If anybody actually buys another people tank top, would you send me a photo of yourself while wearing it? If you would like to write to me, the email address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. I feel like a tank top, like another people tank top could be a good look this summer. I'm just saying. I'm not trying to pressure you. I'm just saying. This program has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free too. Everything's free. Go get the app. It's a free app. It's a good app. Get the app. Coming up on uh, Wednesday, I will be in con- uh, conversation with Gene Keong Fraser, author of Pizza Girl. It's the official July pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Excited uh, to share that one with you. I had a great time talking with Gene Keong Fraser. Coming up on Wednesday right here on the Other People Podcast. Other shows in the offing. Ooh, got Maggie Downs, Lee Stein. I talked to uh, Raphael Bob Waxberg, the guy who uh, created uh, uh, BoJack Horseman and then wrote a story collection. Coming down the uh, pike right here on the Other People Podcast. Stay tuned. Tell your friends. Get in the ready position. It's all happening. Oh, Jesus Christ, wait. (laughs) 